Rising Giants Network. So the Imam just started the speech, maybe after less than two minutes. Uh, I start uh, hearing the like firework. I said, "What's this?" Uh, when I start running away, I I felt something enter my body, and uh, immediately I fall down. And there was a lot of people pushing and shoving, screaming and yelling. So there's a lot of chaos just to get out of that door. I started to call Hussein. Uh, no, uh, no, calling, calling. No answer. No answer. So we started to think that, oh my God, he maybe he was um, in the mosque. This is one of New Zealand's darkest days. I'm Ashley Stewart, and from the Rising Giants Network, this is our darkest day, examining the aftermath of the 2019 Christchurch terror attacks. First of all, Let me just say that this story obviously isn't new. And over the past two years, it has been examined in excruciating detail by incredible journalists in New Zealand and around the world. As a journalist originally from Christchurch, I've spent the last two years following the lives of some of the people most affected by this horrific crime, trying to understand how life goes on after such unspeakable tragedy. I've spent late nights on the phone with survivors and victims' family members, shared meals at their tables, I've met their extended families, and we've met up on both sides of the world. I'm constantly amazed at their capacity for love and forgiveness, despite all they've been through. In this podcast, I have the privilege of introducing you to them. This is the story of that day and the aftermath told in their words. They've been very clear that they want to tell their stories so we can learn from it, so that it doesn't happen again. And so we remember the people who lost their lives rather than the man who took them. Obviously, the content of this podcast is pretty horrifying. There is no happy ending. It's a story about hate, about extremism, and about discrimination in its ugliest forms. We won't be naming the terrorist, and we'll be treading really carefully with the detail of what happened that day. But there's a lot in here that's really hard to listen to. This podcast isn't for sensitive ears or for children. If it's starting to feel like too much, just switch it off. Episode 1. The Attacks It's a crisp autumn morning in New Zealand's second biggest city, The leaves in Hagley Park have just started turning orange and yellow after a hot summer. It's Friday the 15th of March, 2019, like any other Friday in Christchurch, really. No one could have known that all that was about to change. On that autumn day, in Redcliffs, in a beautiful glass-fronted house overlooking the sea, Adib Sami is taking in his first day back in Christchurch after a few months. Adib and his wife Sana split their time between Christchurch and Al Ain in the United Arab Emirates, where he's been the director of an engineering firm for over a decade now. He arrived back just in time to celebrate the birthday of his twin children, Hamza and Ali, who are 23, and he's got a theory that he was called back by a higher power. 
whenever I, I go to bed in, in February, I uh, woke up with a dream that I have to be in Christchurch in March to celebrate my twin birthday. Uh, I have a twin, they are their birthday 14th, 14th of March. Adib is originally from Baghdad in Iraq. He's short, he wears glasses, his grey hair is thinning, and his face is usually cracked wide open in a smile. His wife of three decades, Sana, is really elegant, always perfectly put together in vibrant robes and a hijab. They have four children, all with thick Kiwi accents, and three of them live in Christchurch now, with the other still in Dubai. Adib hadn't told his friends he was back in Christchurch yet. He'd planned to let them know by posting a picture on Facebook of the sweeping seaside views from his coastal home, with one of his car's personalised Adib licence plates. You know, I I have in the Radcliffe my house there. The the view is very nice, and I wanted to post in the Facebook that home sweet home, something like this. Instead, he went off to renew his passport with his daughter Hamza. A beaming selfie of the two of them in a cafe was taken at 12:51 p.m. A little over half an hour later, he'd be lying in a pool of his own blood on the floor of Al Nor Mosque. That day, Friday's midday prayer time was just after 1.30. And as people rushed to get there, cars filled every available space on the roadside. Some women wore headscarves, some men wore thobes, the ankle-length robe commonly worn by Muslim men, and children were hurried along the footpath. Among the crowd was Abdi Ibrahim, a 29-year-old ex-refugee from Somalia. With him was his three-year-old brother, who was in good spirits, happy and animated. On that day, when I was taking my brother Ma'ad in my car to the mosque, and he was getting ready, he told his mum that he wants to wear the white kameez and a hat, traditional Islamic clothing. Usually, um, he does not pick what he wears, as um, mum just gives um, him whatever she chose them. He said to his mum, do I look like a sheikh? And at that time, mum didn't click or recognise his weird behaviour, because at that three-year-old's, it's not normal for kids to request that. But after the incident happened, she knew that there was, um, we call it mu'jizu, a miracle. So while I was driving, and he's in the back seat, just me and him, he kept asking me, can you buy me ice cream, chocolate ice cream? I told him, sure, when, um, after uh, the prayer is finished, I will buy you that chocolate ice cream. The atmosphere in Al Noor Mosque was friendly as always as the first worshippers arrived and took a space inside. Like all mosques, it's a pretty basic space, like an empty hall with sparse white walls and green patterned carpet. The empty space allows worshippers to pray side by side in straight lines facing Mecca. The prayer rooms are segregated. The men were in the main prayer room and the women were in another room, known as the sister prayer room. The Muslim community in Christchurch is relatively small, only about 6,000 in a city of 400,000, meaning everyone in Al Noor more or less knew each other. So when I arrived, um, uh, Mu'ad ran to his father, and um, we were sitting at the front row seats. Uh, I usually go to the Friday Qutbah. I'm usually one of those people that come arrive late. But at that particular day, 
somehow I arrived very early and there was not much people there. And um, let's say if I did arrive late, I would have been sitting in the back seats because in a mosque, you usually, um, when you arrive early, you set up the front row seats to fill up the gaps. So if I arrived early, it could be worse. Adib, who had just gotten his passport and had left his daughter to go shopping with her mum, took a space inside beside his best friend, Abdul Fattah Qasim, who had been his first friend when he arrived in Christchurch all those years ago. Abdul Fattah didn't realise Adib was back in town, so he was pretty excited to see him. You know, because the mosque is the, the time to, 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 to meet everybody. It's like a community centre, our mosque in Al-Nur. So I went early and I met everybody, which uh, I will never forget everyone where he was sitting. Once I arrived to, to, to the mosque, I started, you know, saying hi to everybody. Abdel Fattah, uh, he was in the imam room. And my other friends, they were sitting in the, in the main hall. I always sit in the front uh, row, but this time uh, one, one, uh, one of my friends, he, he survived uh, from this event, shooting event. So he asked me to sit with him uh, and he's always using the bench, not uh, the ground. This is for old people, not for me. <laughs> and he said, no, I miss you a lot, come and sit with me. So I, 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 I sat down with him and uh, start the call for a prayer. And once the call for a prayer, we have to, you know, stop talking. Adib didn't know that his son Ali was in the back room of the mosque. And his eldest son, Abdullah, was making his way there on foot. His sons went to the mosque sporadically, and they hadn't made plans to go together today. Then, the mosque imam appeared at the minbar, beginning in English with, My dear brothers and sisters. Adib still remembers the cracking sound that came from behind him as the imam took a breath to begin his next sentence. So the imam just started the speech. Uh, maybe after less than two minutes, uh, I start uh, hearing the 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 fire uh, like firework. I said, "What's this?" Uh, I never expect that. Uh, I, I told you if it if it uh, in Iraq, I will do. I will run away immediately. I know that this is uh, uh, something serious. But in in New Zealand, I will never expect that this is uh, this will happen or. Uh, or any, any, any near event like this. The congregation didn't know what the noise was yet. They didn't know a man had entered the mosque, dressed in a tactical vest and military clothes, with a head-mounted camera that was live-streaming everything in real time on Facebook. He had two semi-automatic rifles loaded up. The man first approached the front door behind four worshippers who didn't see him, raising his shotgun for the first time the terrorist fired nine shots in quick succession, and then three more. All four men died instantly. Reports say he was then greeted warmly by an elderly Muslim man who said, Hello, brother. 
The terrorist's next shot felled that man, a 71-year-old who escaped war in Afghanistan only to be killed in New Zealand. The terrorist then entered the main room of the mosque, spraying bullets into the crowd of terrified people. There were about 190 people in the mosque by then. Here's Adib. After maybe two, three minutes, I saw everybody is running. Now I realize that this is serious. You need to run away. And uh, when I start running away, I I felt something enter my body. And uh, immediately I fall down. And I, I couldn't uh, feel my, you know, uh, leg. I cannot move. So I laid down. And uh, and just listening to the uh, uh, the guy shooting us and uh, continue shooting us, I I saw everybody you know and the blood everywhere and and I I remember uh, Abdel Fattah and he asked me, uh, Adib, what happened to you? Are you uh, uh, injured? Did you? Uh, get a bullet I told him yes I have a bullet he said don't worry I will I will save you I'm 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 okay chaos erupted in the main room of the mosque as men fell across the room the emergency exit wouldn't open and bodies became heaped by the door someone broke a window at the front allowing a few people to escape but many didn't some pretended to be dead the imam ducked behind the minbar and hid. In one corner, a group of worshippers was huddled together, trying to hide. The terrorist fired 32 shots into them before turning on another group trying to escape through an exit on the other side of the room. As he did so, a Pakistani man named Naeem Rashid ran at the gunman, taking a bullet as he crashed into him. The terrorist shot Naeem as he lay struggling on the ground, but he'd already helped several others escape. By this stage, the gunman had already emptied a 60-round magazine. Abdi was swept up with a group of men who rushed for the broken window. In the chaos, he says his mind shut down and he completely forgot about his brother. At that moment, I was realising, I think uh, today might be the day that we might be out of this world. So at that time, I was doing, I was um, saying my final prayers. Um, yeah. So I was like at the far right um, entrance, and um, all I could think about was just getting away and getting that uh, exit door near me. And my older brother, Muhammad Ibrahim. He was right next to me and he was just in front of me while we were running. And it's like my mind of thinking to save my dad or my brother Mu'ad just slightly um, got away from my mind. Even though I was like sitting right next to my uh, brother Mu'ad and my dad right next to him, it's like my my brain just kind of um, shut down and not look, think twice back. So I went to the right exit and there was a lot of people pushing and shoving, screaming and yelling. So there's a lot of chaos just to get out of that door. 
So while I got out the door, um, doesn't mean that you're safe. So you have to run out of the door and climb over uh, this quite huge fence. It's like a gate. And while I was running, I can see so many people uh, frozen, wondering what's going on. So there was a lot of uh, confusion happening of what they should do. No, I just, I just, my whole goal was just to get to the uh, end of that wall and jump over that fence. And wh- while I was wearing the traditional Islamic clothes, it was very difficult for me to jump over because it was quite high. So I was constantly, you know, trying to jump. And while we were wearing that kameez, I didn't even think about taking it off because it was just trying to jump up the fence. And there was this guy that came and um, I asked for help. And uh, he was, I saw him um, using both of his hands and trying to pull people with their legs up and push them. At that time, I didn't realize his hand was uh, bleeding, but this guy broke one of the windows so people can escape from the windows. The group of men ran through the neighboring house's yard and banged on the door to ask to hide inside. The neighbor let them in and told them to go down the back of the house. The group exited out the back, where they saw one of Abdi's friends, a latecomer to the mosque, arriving in a car. And uh, I just stopped the car in the middle of the road, and uh, he was kind of yelling, saying, what was going on? Why is everyone running on the road? And at that time, I didn't want to tell him and make him panic. So I told him, can we get into your car with a few other people around me? So while we got in the car, he kept repeating, what's happening, what's happening? And at that time, I couldn't tell him because it's going to make him panic. So while we were driving in, the, in one of those road, trying to exit that road, one of the guy that was with us see that there's a shooting happening. So he immediately stops the brake in the middle of the road and he t- says that my father's there, my father's there. And I told him, my family is there too. I'm not going to go back and make a suicide. So we'll, we'll go family too. So we were all trying to uh, reason with him and trying to um, make him not uh, run to that, back to the mosque. So eventually uh, we got hold of him and um, we kept driving. Meanwhile, back at El Noor, the gunman had run out of ammunition. So he'd returned to his car to get another fully loaded firearm. He shot at people running away, firing at people hiding on the street. While the terrorist was outside, Adib saw Ali pull out his phone and try to call the police. He yelled at him to put it down so that he wouldn't draw attention to himself. And then he hauled himself over to lie on top of his son to shield him. By this time, the terrorist had returned to the main prayer room and was firing at victims trying to hide or get away. He deliberately shot people who were wounded or crying. This included a three-year-old boy clinging to his father's legs in fear. He shot the child twice. That child was Abdi's brother. As Adib lay on top of his son, he could feel Ali shaking with fear. 
and that happened when the guy he went to change his weapon because he was using you know semi-automatic weapon and uh, he went uh, some for a while I don't know that he's coming back during that I saw Ali which uh, to be honest I shocked when I saw I never expect that my son is there and uh, uh, Abdel Fattah he asked Ali to lay down because uh, Ali he stand up he want to, to do something then he asked him to lay down so uh, at that time I'm, uh, I started here that shooting again that the guy he came back and start shooting uh, and I get my second bullet in, in my shoulder but for me I, I, I didn't raise my sound I just kept it quiet so, uh, but I'm you know uh, repeating with myself that this is the end and uh, uh, saying shahada which is uh, no God but God something uh, Prophet Muhammad is the messenger of God so I start repeating that. But the main concern now is Ali, because Ali is uh, uh, laying under me. So I wanted to, to at least keep him safe. Uh, the, the, the guy start picking whomever he suspect that he's alive, he give him a bullet. So Abdel Fattah gave him a, a two bullet, one in his head, I, I remember, and one is near his heart. And, uh, you know, the, the blood uh, starts uh, mixing with my blood and he continue for like uh, 10 minutes, something like this. Abdul Fattah, Adib's first friend, died in front of him. The camera on the terrorist's head live-streamed the whole thing and it was 17 minutes before it was finally stopped by Facebook moderators. But it continued circulating on other platforms, with new versions being uploaded as fast as others were removed. The terrorist had finished his second round of shooting and was now returning to his car to head to his next target. Outside, Wasim al-Sati and his four-year-old daughter were laughing and joking as they walked towards the mosque holding hands. They'd just been to a cafe. It was a Friday tradition. He would take one of his children out each week for some quality time. This week, he was joined by his youngest daughter, who we can't name because of court suppression orders. She always has a fluffy with two marshmallows. Usually, the Jordanian native, who works in Christchurch as a barber, would take his daughter home before he went to the mosque. But on March 15th, his wife was busy so he decided to take her along for the first time. These days, Wasim finds it too painful to revisit those memories, so he's told me to recount it for him here. We'll hear from Wasim himself in a later episode. So, Wasim and his four-year-old daughter were almost at the entrance. They'd been running late. As they approached, he saw a friend up ahead rush out onto the road and yell at him to run. Run where? Into the mosque? Away from it? Then he saw what he thought was a military man walking out onto the street, holding a rifle, looking in his direction. But he wasn't looking at Wasim. He was looking downwards at the exact place where a tiny hand was clasped in his. 
Wasim realised what was happening as the terrorist raised his gun and pointed it at his daughter's head. He yanked the girl upwards, trying to pull her out of harm's way. The first bullet hit her in the bottom, the second in her stomach, and the third on her toe. Wasim then took a bullet to the stomach and two to the back as his legs gave way from under him. As he fell, he tried to save his daughter by throwing her between the wheel of a car and a footpath. He collapsed on top of her, trying to shield her while also playing dead. He then watched as the terrorist got into his car and drove away, shooting a woman and driving over her body. Two strangers rushed over to Wasim and his daughter. He passed her to one of them and screamed at them to get her to a hospital. She'd turned blue and then yellow and was shaking violently. A man helped them into his car with Wasim in the front seat as they mounted the curb and sped to Christchurch Hospital, which was barely two kilometres from Al Noor, just across Hagley Park. He looked back at his daughter in the back seat and thought she was already dead. At about this time, Abdi and his car full of survivors encountered the shooter as he was fleeing the scene. Here's Abdi describing the reaction of the driver in his car. He sees one of the cars reversing backwards as fast. And that's not normal for a car to do. So he immediately uh, shouts and says, that's a shooter, that's a shooter. So he immediately reverses backwards and hits the car behind him. So he quickly gets out and uh, it was an old lady and he explains that there's a shooting happening. And she tells him, get out of here, don't worry about this. Not many people rose after the shooter left Al Noor. Dozens were dead or injured. Adib's son, Ali, was one of the lucky who remained unscathed. He rushed to help his father and took off Adib's trousers and tied them around his wounds. Adib tried bleak humour, telling his son to look after his family, joking that it was like what people say in the movies. Uh, at that time, Ali stand up. And I saw him, he's uh, uh, clean, he's no bullets, he survived. So it was a, a happy moment among all this sadness. Ali, he did uh, something amazing to me and uh, I will never forget what Ali did for me. He's, he wanted to help others uh, because I remember one guy uh, nearby, he asked him for a water. Ali started seeing who's, uh, because he has one of his friends also, he started to, to move him, but that uh, he passed away uh, because he has five or more bullets in his body. Uh, and that time, uh, SWAT people come. And uh, the guy, he, uh, I remember his face, he was uh, mid-40 maybe. He said, we will come and help you. Don't worry. So, uh, because, you know, I asked for a help, but uh, they went for others which they were uh, more severe uh, condition than me. I, because I was moving, you know, I can move my, my uh, hand. And so, so there is reaction from my side, but others, there is no reaction. So start checking others. So uh, they took me. And I went to, I, I saw everybody that the, 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 you can, I cannot imagine to you what's, what's the most uh, 
the main hall situation there. Uh, a lot of bodies uh, dumped on uh, the blood everywhere, the, the, the bullets everywhere. It was a terrible, to be honest. But maybe if you ask me till that moment, I will never believe that uh, somebody hate us, come and do this. I said, maybe this is a movie. Or I couldn't believe it. To be honest, till now, I couldn't believe it that this is happening in New Zealand. Across town, Adib's wife, Sana, was with Hamza at the supermarket when her phone rang. It was a friend asking if she'd heard from her husband and saying something had happened at the mosque. Sana didn't know Ali was there too until Hamza said so. Sana got straight in her car and sped towards the mosque, weaving in and out of traffic. As the car slowed at an intersection, Hamza jumped out and started running across the park to try and reach the mosque first. Sana was stopped by police who had blocked the road and a woman told her that there'd been a shooting. She collapsed on the street. Nearby, the wounded were being loaded into ambulances. Others were running, covered in blood, across the park to the hospital. Over at Christchurch Hospital, vascular surgeon Adib Kanafa was halfway into his shift. Vascular surgeons deal with veins and arteries in every part of the body, except the brain and heart. And in other places, they would deal with a few shootings. But this was New Zealand. That kind of stuff is very rare. A few weeks before this, though, something had happened to put the shootings on the minds of Adib and his co-workers. There was a shooting between, uh, between Christchurch uh, police and between a, another public, uh, a member of public, and he was shot on the leg and I was involved or I was on call on, on the day. Um, so when we have um, shootings, we tend to discuss them. So on, on that day, on the 15th, uh, there was a meeting uh, between involved uh, specialities um, at 7.30 in the morning. And it was discussed and uh, what we could do better because we don't see a lot of shootings. And uh, me and my colleague who was the ID consultant um, uh, were there. And the, the trainee who presented said that we're lucky because in Chicago there are like 15,000 shootings a day and luckily in Christchurch we don't have that. And um, uh, we were all kind of, you know, we thought this is blessing from God, we don't have shooting. But on this day in March, everything had seemed normal, quiet even. Then I went to, to my clinic. Everything was, was normal. I planned an elective procedure um, uh, in the afternoon. And then uh, I forgot the timing, but maybe somewhere around one o'clock, um, I was in the Angie suite and there was a call uh, from Theatre 6, which is our emergency theatre, and um, asking uh, for me to, to come immediately. With most of these calls, a vascular surgeon has five or ten minutes to get to the patient before the bleeding becomes a real problem. But this call was urgent. This patient was Wasim's four-year-old daughter, and she was clinically dead. She was one of the first victims to reach the hospital. Her severely injured father had been wheeled off for surgery too. Usually, on any given day, four acute theatres out of 12 would be running at Christchurch Hospital. Soon, that became all 12. Adib, the surgeon, is a Muslim too, from Lebanon, but born in Kuwait, and a father of four children, so this case was always going to be particularly hard. Catching a glimpse of the small, lifeless form on the operating table as he prepped for surgery, it was already too much. 
I've always avoided uh, working in pediatrics, uh, which is a specialty for kids, because I could not. Uh, I'm soft heart when it comes to babies or kids or kids crying. Um, so uh, even even as a vascular surgeon, even when my child gets injured, I kind of uh, lose my bearing. I, I can't take it. So as soon as I I, I got in and um, I saw. Um, um, the patient, I didn't know she was a girl. Um, I saw there was an injured person on the table. The first thing um, happened is I literally cried. Um, this is, and I still cry now actually. I've just literally uh, cried because it was, uh, takes takes you a few minutes to, to scrub up and in that five minutes I just um, uh, composed myself and I've asked one of the nurses to get my, my colleagues because um, we needed every possible help to save this girl. Uh, interestingly, my colleague was uh, was away from me, was in ED, uh, realized, so it took him a while to, to, to come over. So I cried. Um, I composed myself three, four minutes, and um, I've, I've, joined, I've joined the team. The pediatric surgeons who already had the situation under control, there, there was uh, a trouble getting a line, getting a line to give... Uh, the little girl fluids to resuscitate her. The little girl's injuries were severe. She'd had no blood pressure for 40 minutes. Of her three gunshot wounds, it was the one to her pelvis that was causing the most trouble. It had hit a major vessel, one that carries deoxygenated blood to the heart. 90% of people die from that injury. It's paper thin and extremely difficult to repair. So when I joined when I joined the team, there was an extreme difficulty getting a line into um, um, into the little girl to support her with blood and fluids. We were we were there uh, for approximately uh, two hours. Here, where faith comes in, um, Ashley, survival is 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 not something uh, I predict or it's me to decide on a survival of a patient. Survival is. As a Muslim, you, you do uh, you've got a skill, and you do and you do your skills, and survive or not, it's um, it's a call for Allah Almighty, as 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 a Muslim believe. Christchurch Hospital soon became overrun with the wounded and their families. The injuries were horrific, worse than a typical gunshot wound should be. Later, we would learn that the terrorist had used hollow point ammunition bullets designed to cause maximum tissue injury by ricocheting and causing damage to nearby organs. Adib doesn't remember exactly when he was told that the injuries to the little girl were caused by a mass shooting in a mosque, but when he did hear, he was floored. He scrubbed in on five surgeries that day for victims of the attacks. After I left, I went out and I cried. I couldn't believe what has happened. We had a, uh, an Egyptian uh, doctor with us who uh, wanted to go to the Friday prayers. But on the day, we had a lot of work, and I've asked him not to go to the Friday prayers because we had a lot of work to do, and I had two theatres running, and I've asked him to run one theatre, and I will run the, the other theatre. And I believe today that if we were not busy and he would have gone to the Friday prayers, he would have been dead. So I left theatre and he was opposite me, the opposite theatre. So I left theatre, I, I cried. One of my colleagues hugged me. 
And then I went to the next theater where Ahmed was operating and I hugged him. And I said, I'm so glad I stopped you from going because you would have been dead by now. But the terrorist hadn't targeted just one mosque. While dozens of injured were flooding Christchurch Hospital from Al Noor Mosque, the terrorist had travelled to the Linwood Islamic Centre. His live stream had stopped, but undeterred, he got out of his car with yet another firearm and began his second massacre. When he ran out of ammunition, a man who was at the mosque with his four children chased him from the centre, holding a credit card reader as a makeshift weapon and screaming at him to leave. The terrorist returned from his car with another gun. In just a few minutes, he'd run out of ammunition again and seven people had been killed. The man who'd had the credit card reader chased the terrorist to his car with his discarded gun and threw it at him as he drove away. The terrorist, laughing and talking to himself, sped down one of the city's main thoroughfares. He was heading for another mosque, an hour's drive south of Christchurch. But nearby, two rural police officers had just left a training day on dealing with armed defenders. They heard the call come in about the attacks on police radio and took the road they figured the terrorist would most likely take out of town. When they saw a car matching the shooters, travelling in the opposite direction, driving erratically, they made a split decision. They swung their car around and tailed him before ramming into the car and shunting it off the road. The two officers pulled the man from his car and arrested him on the spot. In his car, they found firearms and two improvised explosive devices. The city was in lockdown. Everyone was asked to stay inside. Nobody really knew what was going on. There were whispered stories of multiple gunmen in a city under siege. In the central city, Christchurch Mayor Leanne Delziel was with thousands of schoolchildren who had been marching as part of the global school strikes for climate. She remembers the exact moment she found out about the shooting. Yes, I was standing uh, next to my media manager who had just uh, literally looked at it on a on a news website on her mobile phone and she handed it to me. And my initial reaction was to read it and then go, well, look, this is irresponsible journalism. That They shouldn't be printing something like that. That can't possibly be true. So my initial reaction, and actually it, it stayed my reaction for some time, was, was really... To, uh, to be disbelieving that that could ever happen here. Mayor Dalziel went back to the council buildings a few blocks away. A council committee meeting was happening upstairs. And it was at that point that I got uh, the message from my uh, member of staff who basically said, no, we're, we're, the police actually don't want people to leave the building, so you need to tell people that something's happened and uh, and that they need to stay indoors. So I, I got back up on the on the sofa and and called this out uh, to the to the group and said, you know, you do need to stay here um, and just I want you to find a, a quiet space and to send a message to your family and just let them know that you're safe and you are safe here, um, but you won't be allowed to leave in the meantime. She struggled with how to respond to the situation. 
She wasn't the mayor during the city's most recent test of faith, the 2011 earthquake, but she had helped the city navigate its aftermath. This was something else entirely. This was kind of like, it was that pit in the stomach. Just felt, I actually felt like I was going to cry. From there, Dalziel addressed the country. She did pieces to camera on her mobile phone, held up by her press secretary. She was running on adrenaline and disbelief. Looking back now, there are things she wishes she'd done differently. She didn't have anyone on hand to sign for the deaf community. She feels she was too emotional, looking visibly upset in her Facebook streams. Yeah, yeah. so we sat here on Friday night. What were the messages that I needed to say? Yeah. And the love, compassion and kindness. It, they were in every center. single sentence. Yeah. Um, right from the get-go. And, you know, we came together after the earthquakes. We need to come together and support each other now. Mm-hmm. You know, so that idea of, of unity, that was there right from the start. At about 4pm, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern speaks publicly too. An extraordinary and unprecedented act of violence. This is one of New Zealand's darkest days. Back at the mosque, people who had not heard from their family members had begun congregating around the cordon. Among them was Jana Azat and her husband, Hazm Alamari, immigrants from Iraq. They were pretty sure their 35-year-old son, Hussein, had been inside. He hadn't shown up at their house for lunch, and when they saw the news, they panicked. Because it's a Friday and uh, he didn't have a job, so he has to go to the mosque. And uh, before that, we, yeah, it's, uh, uh, I was about to do the lunch or uh, waiting for Hussein after the Friday prayer. And we received a phone call from his close friend. His name is Sama. And he told us uh, there are some shooting at the mosque. Where is Hussein? I told him Hussein's supposed to come to our house, but I don't know if he's at the mosque or he's still sleeping at uh, his home. So since that, I started to call Hussein. Uh, no, uh, no, calling, calling, no answer, no answer. So we started to think that, oh my God, he maybe he was um, in the mosque. And then I was at work. So I told Aya to go direct to his uh, home to check if he was at his, because we, we have the key and we, we will see his car. If, so I immediately went from her job to Hussein's um, uh, house and she couldn't find the car. She knocked the door, nobody inside the house. And then uh, the, start, the city started to close down. Jana is talking here about her daughter, Aya, who she sent to Hussein's house to try and find him and see if his car was outside. Aya was 33 at the time, two years younger than Hussein, and the two were close. On my went to Hussein's house, it was chaos. It, it honestly was chaos. Like the, the, the last time I remember it being that chaotic was not long after the earthquakes. Um, every, yeah, everybody wanted to get home and check on, check on their loved ones. Mm. And um, it took me like, a, I think a 20 minute trip to his home took me about 40 minutes. And the, the anticipation, the adrenaline, oh my God, yeah. Yeah. So we never uh, heard from Hussein. 
and um, um, uh, we gave up. Uh, then we, um, I, um, we went to the we went to the mosque to. So the nearest place is in Rikitan to park the car because it's uh, we are not allowed to drive. It's the the streets are empty. So we walked, tried to go to the mosque to Dean's Ave, but the uh, police and uh, the people uh, they told us to go to the hospital. So I begged them to just to see if Hussein's car on Dean's Ave. They prevented me. Then we go walking to Christchurch Hospital, and we were locked there. And also Aya uh, arrived to. So I met Aya uh, at the hospital, and we were locked there until. Uh, I think about seven or there were yeah seven. there was a curfew. I think mm. from memory there was a curfew until the evening. Jana appeared on the national news, crying and asking for information about her son. By evening, dozens of families were congregating at the hospital. At about 7pm, Jacinda Ardern gave another address to the nation and labelled the shootings a terror attack for the first time. It is clear that this can now only be described as a terrorist attack. For those of you who are watching at home tonight and questioning how this could have happened here, we, New Zealand... We were not a target because we are a safe harbour for those who hate. We were not chosen for this act of violence because we condone racism, because we are an enclave for extremism. We were chosen for the very fact that we are none of these things, because we represent diversity, kindness, compassion, a home for those who share our values, refuge, for those who need it. And those values, I can assure you, will not and cannot be shaken by this attack. People were shocked that this could happen somewhere like New Zealand. But later, those of us outside of Muslim communities would learn that actually they'd been dealing with threats of violence for a long time. We'll hear more about that later. The death toll kept rising. Dozens were injured, some were critical. Over the next few hours, the emergency department had to turn patients away. But tension grew as distraught loved ones showed up looking for missing family members, including Adib Sami's family, who didn't know that his injuries were so severe he was now in an induced coma. Abdi, in the group fleeing in the car, suggested that they go to the hospital too. His family had called to tell him his father was at the hospital, injured, and his little brother, who had insisted on wearing his kameez and hat that day, had died. Abdi refused to believe this was true. He put out a public plea for information about his brother, accompanied by a photo of a man carrying the little boy from the mosque. It went viral on social media. The man in the picture was his father, and the boy's body was limp. And that's when I said, hey, let's go to uh, the emergency hospital. That's where we'll find out information of what is going on, who's alive, who's dead. And at that time, I, in the back of my mind, I knew that that's not a safe place because in these scenarios, there could be multiple shooters to finish off the job. And that's exactly what multiple officers told me. 
but I didn't want to give that news to the group that was in the car because it was just going to cause more panic. Um, so when we arrived at the hospital, there was security guards, pretty much blood everywhere, people yelling, screaming, shouting. And we went to this upstairs where all the other people were there. Uh, there was quite a few mothers crying, fainting, yelling. There was a lot of anger and confusion, trying to get information what was going on. And obviously the people at the hospital weren't giving any information. Abdi found his father at the hospital, where he was told again that his three-year-old brother had died. Abdi's father had carried his son's lifeless body out of the mosque. There was no hope. Jana, Hazim and Aya were still at the hospital, hoping Hussein's name would be read out on the list of the injured being treated there. But as the hours passed, the list of names kept being read out and Hussein was never on it. They locked the, the hospital and then as soon as the, that got lifted, mum and dad went home. Yeah, I stayed. Yeah, because uh, they were uh, announcing names of injured people. So I stayed till 3 a.m. maybe. By the time I got home the first night, the list hadn't been finalized because there were still people in in comas, I suppose, or they couldn't identify whoever was injured in the hospital. So that list was never finalized. And then there was the rumor that there was a few more injured people in another hospital. Mm. And so you had this like, okay, glimpse of hope. Okay, maybe, maybe... Maybe in in that other hospital, and Mm. I don't know. We were just not in the right state of mind to fact-check anything. That night was the first night I spoke to Jana. I was working as a reporter, and I'd asked to work on the Christchurch story because it was my hometown. It was about 7 p.m. Dubai time when I sent her a message on Facebook. I told her that I understood it was the middle of the night in New Zealand, but I'd seen her on the news and I wanted to get the word out there to help her find some information about her son. It took her about 30 minutes to reply to me, uh, but all she sent was a a thumbs-up emoji. She sent me her cell phone number on Facebook and then asked for me to call her. At the time, it was about 4 a.m. in New Zealand. So I called her pretty much immediately and I just said that I was incredibly sorry to hear what had happened Um, and basically all she did was cry down the phone line to me for about 45 minutes. She said she didn't know where her son was, that she just wanted information and then she pleaded with me to stay on the phone with her because she just needed someone to talk to and she couldn't sleep. I said I'd do what I can and that I'd write a story up and get it online as soon as possible so that if anyone had seen Hussein, they could contact her. She, even to this day, still doesn't know why she took my phone call that night. It was a surreal feeling getting off the phone with her. She was so emotional and I don't know why she answered my Facebook message at all. She knew I was a reporter and she knew why I was getting in touch with her, but she just sounded like she desperately wanted someone to talk to because she didn't know what else to do. She doesn't actually know why she answered my Facebook message that night either. She'd given her phone to Aya because she couldn't take the amount of texts and phone calls and messages that she was getting, and she was done with it. So I think in a moment of weakness, she probably just, in the middle of the night, needed someone to chat to. 
And that's when she gave me her phone number. It could also be that I mentioned that I was from Dubai and she'd lived there before, so she obviously saw that UAE connection. As the minutes ticked by, without news of Hussein, hope ebbed away from the Alamari family and many others. Police were unable to identify the dead fast enough, both because of the state of many of the bodies and because many didn't have identification on them when they went to pray. We started to prepare ourselves for the worst. And uh, because no one knew from Hussein, and mm, his name is not on the list of injuries, uh, my husband told me, Jenna, I'm sure uh, Hussein uh, uh, never get uh, if in this situation like... He will never sit still. He will do something. He will do something. Sure. And I immediately believed uh, my husband because I know Hussein. And he has histories in Abu Dhabi. <laughs> he ended up in the police station in Abu Dhabi <laughs> when he was visiting his dad. He's very def- defending. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, but as soon as he perceives a threat, then um, Hussein would be there to, to to protect. And that's what he, that's what we articulate happened from in the mosque as well, is he saw the threat coming in and he was there to um, try and defend. In the next episode of Our Darkest Day, Jana finds out what happened to her son. Politicians, police and media respond to the atrocity and a nation comes to grips with an event that calls into question many of their ideas about who New Zealanders are. So the blood was fresh from his head. His body was um, not stiff, uh, was as if he was sleeping. But if anyone had said it would happen in New Zealand, I wouldn't believe it. You know, like, for me, we were so distant from this. This was, this happens in other parts of the world, Mm. not here. Our Darkest Day is a Rising Giants Network production. It was written by myself, Ashley Stewart. It was produced by Bashar Najjar and Basil Anabtawi, with script and story consultation by Popsock Media in New Zealand. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Spotify, Angami, or wherever you get your podcasts.